And as time marches on, we will continue to worship the Lord. This is just practice for eternity. This is just practice for what we'll have the pleasure of doing for untold generations. This morning we find ourselves, by God's grace, back in the book of Revelation. We're making our way through. We were discussing last night, I don't know how long we've been in Revelation, but it's been a little bit. But we're getting towards the close of the revelation of Jesus Christ and what he chose to reveal to his church and to his people and to those who would believe. And this morning, I've entitled our message this morning, The Revelation of the Heart. And there's a point and a purpose to that. Chapter 20 is a sad chapter, in my opinion. It's a joyous chapter, but it's a sad chapter. It's the closeout of human history. It's the exaltation of Christ and his church. But it's also the revelation of the true heart of the sons of Adam. But this morning we are going to see three different things and we're going to look at them. We're going to look at firstly a time of rest. Secondly, we're going to look at a time of righteous rule. And then thirdly, we're going to look at a time of revelation. But I wanted to start our discussion this morning talking about Satan. Because we have many fellow believers in Christ who believe Satan is not active and living today. We have many who don't believe in the existence of Satan. How many people in the world that you know scoff at the idea that there's an actual Satan? Or we don't believe rightly of him. He's a little red man running around with a pitchfork and a pointed triangle tail who dances in flames and laughs, right? Or how many people attribute more power to Satan than he has? Oh, he can read my mind. No, he cannot. Satan is very well versed in the practicality and the nuances of mankind because he's studied us for thousands of years. He's not ignorant. He was the chief creation of God in the angelic order. But he is still created. He is still a being made by the power of God and therefore limited in God's power. We often attribute many acts of God to Satan or vice versa. Satan is nothing more than a tool in the hands of a holy and living God. Yes, does he have power to perform signs and wonders through people? Yes. Does he have the power to deceive? Yes. Does he have the power to inflict wounds upon mankind? Yes. But all at the behest of a holy God. All at, within the sovereign control of God. There's two great things that Satan has done. He's either caused people to not believe in him, or he's caused people to become obsessed with him. We see that in much of the occult today. If you don't believe me, there's a lot of occultism going around. Look around you. There's much of it. Satan has caused people to be fascinated with him. Fascinated with power. Fascinated with the idea of what? Privilege. Of being known. Popularity. 
Do you know how many times I have heard the testimonies of those in Hollywood saying they signed a contract with Satan to get where they are? It is not uncommon. And now they're being blatantly obvious about it. They're proud of that fact. They have walked in the ways of the satanic to gain power and privilege and popularity. But what did the great John the Baptist, the greatest man Christ said who lived, what did he say? He must increase, I must decrease. To have a biblical view of God and of Christ, we must decrease that he may increase. Why? Because Christ is preeminent in all things, and he does not share his glory with another. So if we are seeking popularity and power and privilege and prestige, we are seeking Christ in the wrong way. We are seeking Christ in the way that Satan did, to put him under our feet that we might exalt our throne above the throne of heaven. And mankind is very easily provoked into doing that. It doesn't take much to prick the pride of a man's heart. If you don't believe me, try to pop somebody's pride and see what happens. But we know that Satan is nothing more than a pawn in the hand of a sovereign God. How do we know that? Well, we're going to go to my favorite book of the Bible. Book of Job chapter 1. Go ahead and turn there with me this morning. Book of Job chapter 1. And we're going to see here the fact that God spells out that Satan is nothing more than a pawn in his hand. Job chapter 1 verse 12. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand upon him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. God told Satan, Hey, have you considered my servant Job? There is nobody like him upon the earth. And what is Satan's temper tantrum? Ah, he fears God for nothing because you have set your hedge of protection about him. So what does God do? He says, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not touch the man himself. So as much hatred as Satan has for the people of God, he cannot satisfy his bloodlust of Job. He can only touch the possessions of Job. And that in the limited context that God has set. And then in chapter 2, in verse 6, So then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. So again, we see that God sets limits upon Satan. God uses Satan to his ends. And the interesting thing is, is pride blinds the heart. Pride blinds the mind. Why do I say that? Well, I say that for two reasons. One, because you see it with people, right? A man standing up in his pride is very narrow-minded. He's got the blinders on, right? Like a horse. When they have the blinders on so they can focus on just what's ahead. They have their mind and their eyes set on their pride and they can only see that and they can't see their flaws and they can't see the things happening on either side. Satan is the same way. In being created the foremost in God's angelic order, And blinded by his pride, he cannot see that he is just a pawn in the hands of God. He knows the word of God. Don't take it as he doesn't. How does he tempt? Did God really say? Right? 
How does he doubt, make people doubt the existence of God? How does he make people doubt the sovereignty of God? How does he make people doubt the love of God? How does he make the church doubt the wrath of God? Because he uses just enough of God's word to make it sound true, and then he twists it. And yet he can't see the fact that the end is already spelled out. Satan has been a defeated foe since the day he was created. Make no mistake of that. But yet he does wield great power. But his power is limited. As we see here in the book of Job, his power is limited. But you know what's also interesting in the book of Job? is You see that when Satan comes and presents himself before the Lord, God asks him a question. Where have you come from? Do you know what most petulant children would tell their parents? None of your business. Does Satan do that? No. He gives an accounting. I find that fascinating, actually. There's a lot of things fascinating in the book of Job. But the character of Satan before the presence of God is fascinating. (coughs) He gives an account. Yes, does he throw a temper tantrum? Yes. But it's restrained. And he obeys the command of God. Go forth and stretch out your hand over his possessions, but touch not the man. And we read the account that Satan struck the things of Job. And yet Job was not touched. And then we see the second command of God. See, my servant still worships me. While any man will give whatever he has, he will give everything that he has for his own life. So God says, go ahead, strike the man, but do not kill him. And as much hatred as Satan has for the holiness of God and for Christ and for his people, he still cannot stretch out his hand and destroy the man. Why? Because God has spoken And Satan must obey. Again, oftentimes we paint Satan in this light of he's this great and powerful and mighty angelic being. And he is. But he's still within the control of a sovereign God. He has never left the bounds that God has set for him. As God says, I have set a decree and a boundary for the ocean that its waters may not transgress farther than I have set. So he's done the same thing with Satan. He has set him within the bounds and the confines of the sovereign will of God. That's why at the end that God predicted, how many thousands of years ago? A couple thousand years ago. That at the end, Satan still does exactly what he's supposed to do. Because God has an agenda and God has a plan. And there is nothing and no one under all the created universe that can thwart the plan of God. That's the glory of the sovereignty of God. And it's interesting, here now, in the end of the book, we're going to catch a glimpse of, they've all disappeared, Hazel. We, we catch a glimpse of going back to Eden. We're going to catch a glimpse when Christ comes again and establishes his millennial kingdom. We're going to catch a glimpse of Eden again. But this time... The fault is man's. Again. It's no longer the devil made me do it. It's no longer Satan turned my heart and deceived me. It's man. And it's depravity. But the scriptures are not silent about the millennial kingdom. There's many scriptures that speak to the truth of this physical thousand year reign. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11 please. Isaiah chapter 11. 
Now again, like I said, there are many scriptures all throughout the Old Testament. Some of them are in the book of Deuteronomy, 2 Samuel, the book of Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Micah, Zephaniah, Zechariah. All these books proclaim the millennial kingdom of Christ. The New Testament does as well. But in Isaiah chapter 11, I want to read verses 1 through 10. And then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his shoots will bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what he sees, his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also a belt of righteousness will be a belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze together, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den, and they will not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that day the nations will resort to the rut of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. This is speaking of the millennial kingdom of Christ. This is speaking of the time when righteousness and the understanding of righteousness will be known in all the earth. We go back to an Eden-like garden where the whole earth will be in peace and unity and prosperity and health. We know from other passages, especially in Isaiah 60, where Isaiah says those who live only a hundred years will be considered a child. We'll get to that a little bit later. But we see the fact that the whole earth is full of the knowledge of the Holy One. And we see that there is peace and harmony even between man and animals. I don't know about you, but I haven't seen that yet. I don't know about you, but I haven't seen a wolf go in with a lamb and not eat it. Or a child play with a cobra and not get killed. Or a little boy leading a lion around. I haven't seen that yet. John Bright, he had this quote. He says, the Bible is one book. And had we, give it, uh, had we to give that book a title, we might with justice call it the book of the coming kingdom of God. The whole Bible is about the coming kingdom of Christ and of his righteousness and of his rule and of the glory of the Father through the ruling righteousness of the Son. That will culminate one day in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. I'm going to take just a short time because I could get into this for hours, but I won't. There are actually three millennial views, right? There's premillennialism, which is where I stand, just in case you guys wanted to know. Premillennialism says that Christ will come and establish a literal thousand year reign. 
I stand upon that. It's the literal interpretation of the scripture. You cannot, and the other two views also concede the fact that if you take scripture literally, you have to believe a premillennialism view. But if you don't take scripture literally, you don't have to. The second view is postmillennialism. That was very popular in the 18th and 19th century when you had the Age of Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution, you had Darwinism. You had a lot of peace and harmony, supposedly, in the earth. But you know when post-millennialism died after World War II? Why? Because the post-millennial view preaches the fact that Christ will only come back when the world is at its best. That Christianity, the world will be so Christianized, it will be at the pinnacle it's saying that right now we have the millennium going on and as we move the world into believing in Christ, it will become so good that Christ can come back. That's the belief of postmillennialism. That after the millennium, Christ will come back. Again, that, that idea died out mostly right after World War II. Why? Well, you had, at the beginning of the 1900s, you had, the roaring, you had World War I, the moral decline in the 20s and 30s, the depression, then you had the wholesale slaughter of Jews in World War II, people realized the world's not getting better. Therefore, that view mostly died out. And then the third view you have, you have amillennialism. It's a little deceiving. It's not that they don't believe in the millennium, but amillennialism preaches, and it only hasn't died out because of there is one person back in the beginning of church history that believed in amillennialism and set the Reformation on that path. That was Augustine. Augustine had good theology in most things. But amillennialism believes that we are living now, not in a literal thousand-year reign, but we are living now in the millennium, and all the promises of the millennium are happening now. I don't know how you believe that. I haven't seen the curses of the tribulation, of the seals, the bulls, Trumpets, of course I said those in backwards order, but that's okay. I haven't seen a lot of it. But the problem with amillennialism is a few things. It relies heavily on symbolism. That all the words in Revelation are symbolic. That all the millennial prophecy, one of which we just read in Isaiah, is symbolic. That you can't take a literal interpretation to prophecy which also begins another problem. So man is now the interpreter of Scripture. Man is the interpreter of the prophecy of God. It no longer relies on the revelation of God, but the revelation of what words man puts to it. That is a problem. There is no number in the book of Revelation that can be proven not to be taken literally. You have the seven churches, or seven literal churches, that were written to by the Apostle John. (coughs) I could go on. You have seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. You have three angels for the last three woes. You have 144,000. You have 12 apostles. So on and so forth. I could go on for a while, but I promise I wouldn't. But they also believe a very dangerous fallacy that Satan is bound now. That goes against Scripture. It goes against the word that Satan is the enemy of the church and that he is living and active. But I'm going to go to one passage of Scripture and then I'll put this to rest. 
Go to Luke chapter 1. We're in the Christmas season, so it's kind of fitting, right? Luke chapter 1. This is the danger that is posed by amillennialism. And yes, there are some godly teachers that believe it. Bodhivakam is one. But here we go in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 to 33. This is the message that God sent through Gabriel, the angel, to Mary. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he shall be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So the problem with amillennialism is, if you take all the prophecies that are future intense and translate them non-literal. So, was Jesus born of a virgin? Yes. Was he named Jesus? Yes. Was he conceived in a womb and born as a son? Yes. Was he called great? Yes. Was he called the son of the Most High? Yes. Will, it, will the Lord give him his, the throne of his father David? No. That's where amillennialism breaks. Because if Christ doesn't gain the literal throne of David, because the millennium doesn't happen, you have to break this prophecy of Christ up into this part's literal, this part is not. That's the danger that you run into. Now you start interpreting scripture based on what fits your view instead of what is God's view and how do I conform my understanding of it to God's view. Anyway, like I said, I'm going to stop because I could go on for a while about it, but I won't. But go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Revelation 20, if you would, please. We are in Revelation chapter 20, and we're going to go through verses 1 through 10. I've been excited to preach this message for a while. It's been a little bit because we've all been sick and floundering in our health. But now that we're healthy, we're going to go ahead. Go ahead, Revelation chapter 20. We're going to be in verse 1 and read through verse 10. And then we're going to pray and ask the Lord's blessing on us because it's... Without God's blessing, I'm just a noisy gong, as the Apostle Paul says. And I don't want to be just a noisemaker, so we're going to ask God's blessing on it. Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were completed. And after these things he must be released for a short time. And then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. 
and the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came upon the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who, was dece- who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign. We thank you that in your sovereignty you have proclaimed that today should be. And Father, we just ask that we would make the most of it in worship that is pleasing in your sight that we would be a sweet-smelling fragrance before you. Father, we just ask that you will help to set our minds upon your word and set our minds upon our love of Christ, that we would worship in spirit and truth this morning. And Father, as we get into your word, we just ask that you will give clarity and wisdom, because to you and you alone is all understanding and knowledge and wisdom. And we ask that you would give us some of your wisdom and knowledge that we may interpret your word as you have ordained it and as you have written it. And Father, we just ask that you will give us wisdom to walk faithfully each and every day in the power of the truth of your word, in the power of the resurrection of Christ, because we have been washed and set free of the bondage of sin, that we have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. And Father, we just give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. If you haven't noticed, the phrase a thousand years is mentioned six times in this little ten verses. It's important. It's significant. But here we are going to start looking at some of the beauty of what's happening, but also the heartbreak that's happening. So as I said, this is a revelation of the heart. But in verses 1 through 3, we're going to look at a time of rest. A time of rest. And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. We see a time of great rest and refreshment for the people of God. So let's start at the beginning, shall we? And I don't mean going back to Genesis. So don't don't be like, "Oh boy, we're going to Genesis and walking through the whole Bible." No. But we're going to go back to the beginning and the fact that the chronology of Revelation as it's laid out. So we have the we have the tribulation. And after the tribulation, you have the battle of Armageddon. And after the Battle of Armageddon, you have the return of Christ, which is at the Battle of Armageddon. And then after that, you have the setting up of the Millennial Kingdom of Christ. And then you have the judgment. And then you have the new heavens and new earth. So just keep that in mind as we're walking through here, that chapter 19 precedes chapter 20 and 21 and 22. And that's how it fits in our timeline But the first order of business is what? After Christ comes back and he throws the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire and brimstone, which is hell. They're the first people we hear in scripture being thrown into the eternal place of hell. We have many that are all unbelievers that are in that place of Sheol and the place of torment that is not a final resting place. 
But we see that after this, that the beast and the false prophet were thrown alive into the lake of fire and brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of Christ. What's the first order of business in setting up his kingdom? The removal of Satan and his demon hosts, right? No longer will Satan be allowed to roam the earth. No longer will Satan be allowed to twist and deceive the hearts and minds of men. Well, how do we know this? And how are people still there? It's the next question, right? If Christ has a millennial kingdom, who's part of it? There are two very distinct groups in the millennial kingdom. But we're going to read a little bit first about Satan. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 has this to say. Sorry. My fingers are flipping fast this morning. I need to catch up with them. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. And in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. This is one of the benefits of the binding of Satan. No longer is he going to be out deceiving and blinding the eyes of the ungodly. Do you know what? When the millennium starts, there are no ungodly. Again, we will get to that. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2, calls on the prince of the power of the air that is in working in the hearts of the sons of disobedience. This is the first order of business that Christ removes that obstacle. So we have people being ushered into the millennium, right? Who are those people? So we see, again, if we use the chronology of Scripture, and the chronology is the book of Revelation is written, the beast and the false prophet and all those that follow after Christ are annihilated at the battle of Armageddon. They're destroyed by the word of Christ. So who's left? Well, if you remember back in Revelation, God did what with the sons of Israel who believed? He took them and he hid them in the desert. He prepared a place for them, and he cared for them, and he gave them food and water. There's a believing remnant of Israel that has remained. There's also the believing remnant of those who are Gentiles, who have believed in the word of Christ and the preaching of the word of Christ. And through the devastating Uh, and horrific judgments of God through the tribulation have believed in the word of Christ. Not all were killed. So you have two believing remnants of Jews and Gentiles that are alive when Christ comes back. And if they're believing, they're obviously not part of the army in the battle of Armageddon that are set up to overtake and to overthrow Christ. So you have these people that are alive at the end of the tribulation. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Out of all that death and destruction, yet God still saves the remnant. And it's these people who now walk in alive into the millennial kingdom of Christ. My family got got me on a big sidetrack this morning and used about an hour of my morning of preparation to discuss this whole topic. And I kind of chuckled about it this morning. But you have now Christ come back and you have a millennial kingdom. So you still have what? People. There are still people made in the image of God who are still sons and daughters of Adam. What do sons and daughters of Adam have? It's a question. Sin nature. Sin nature. So, if they propagate throughout the millennial kingdom, what are they propagating? The sin nature of man. It has not gone away. And that's one of the fallacies that some people hold to in the uh, the millennial kingdom, that it will be perfect without sin. It will not. Psalm 2 tells us what? That Christ will rule the nations with a rod of iron. 
It also tells us here later on in verse 4 and 5 that those who come back with Christ will rule in righteousness. Well, if they're ruling, there has to be what? Something to rule upon. There will be disputes. There will be sin because there will still be people made in the image of Adam on earth. But here's the interesting thing. You have people coming into the millennium, all of them believers. This is the beauty of the scripture to show the depravity of the heart of man. You have all these people that come into the millennial kingdom of Christ. All of them are qualified as believers in Christ. They have children. And now, when you can live a few hundred years, you can have a lot of children. Right? We're going back to the beginning. Back to a time of when Eden was perfect. You have perfect health. Good health. No death in the sense of childbearing. You have animal relations with people. Their animals aren't attacking people anymore. You have all the benefits of the Garden of Eden. Plus one beautiful benefit. You have Christ physically ruling and reigning in Jerusalem. People can go and see Christ. People can go and worship God on the holy mountain. And then you have what else? You have the elect of God that are ruling and reigning perfectly. We got in this discussion, and we'll get down to it when we get in verse 4. But intrinsic righteousness versus imputed righteousness. And those are two very important words, and we'll talk about them a little bit, a little bit later here. But as Christ has now removed the great enemy of the church and the great enemy of God's people, people have no excuse. People have Christ physically reigning. What happened when Christ came the first time? People saw God. People saw God in the flesh, and yet they still rejected him. We'll see, unfortunately, that this time of rest will only last for a period of time. But we have here an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss. Again, that signifies that God has given him authority. God has given him the key of the great abyss. Who is the angel? I don't know. Bible doesn't say who it is. We could, we could speculate, maybe Michael, because he's the great arch enemy of Satan. Scripture backs that up in many places. But again, it doesn't say, therefore I am not saying who it is, because I don't know. It just says a mighty angel, right? It's got to be a mighty angel. Think about it. He can bind Satan, the pinnacle of the created order of angels, great in power. Go to the book of Ezekiel and read about him. God spoke glorious things of who he was and how, how he was created. He was a cherub, the covering and anointed cherub. But we have an angel here who's been given authority to throw a great chain around him and bind him and then put him in the abyss and seal it over him for a thousand years. That word abyss has been used seven times in the book of Revelation. It is a temporary place of incarceration for the most vile of demons. And demons fear it. If you don't believe me, read in the book of Luke in chapter 8 and verse 31 specifically. Where you guys remember when Christ came and they had a legion of demons in the man. And there was a, what? A flock of pigs or a herd of pigs, right? And they were begging Christ, please don't throw us in the abyss, but send us into the pigs instead. 
Demons understand the fact that the abyss is not where they want to go. They beg Christ not to send them there. It is a place of torment. 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20, I'll read that for you this morning, sets the context of it. And it says, In which he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, those who, were cons- who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Which goes in couples with Jude chapter, uh, verse 6, obviously chapter 1. And the angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. That is speaking of the abyss. That is speaking of the place of torment where those who are disobedient were thrown and cast. It is not a place anybody wants to go. But he is now bound and put Satan in this abyss. And he is given a time of rest for his people. A time of rest for humanity to make a choice. The choice that Joshua greatly pronounced in his day. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Or we won't. That was the whole point of Joshua's statement. Choose ye this day. That's what the millennial kingdom is about. Choose ye this day. In the thousand year reign of Christ, whom you will serve. Christ or self. Because again, those are the only choices that we have. We'll either serve and submit to God in the person and work of Jesus Christ, or we will submit to ourselves and our sinful pleasures and passions. Those are our only choices. This is what we have. And then we see here in verse 2 the four names of Satan again. He laid hold of the dragon. That word dragon for Satan has been used 12 times thus far in Revelation. Speaks of his bestial nature of his strength, of his rage, of his destructive power, right? All of us think of dragons. We don't think of Puff the Magic Dragon, right? We think of like a great giant beast with claws of iron and teeth like spears, right? That's what we think of. Dragons were terrifying. But that's what he's called. Secondly, he's called the serpent of old, which again, we're going back to the garden, right? Going back to the original sin. And that's very important to believe in original sin, right? Very important. But the serpent deceived Eve, and Adam willingly partook. Thirdly, it's called the devil, which means slander or a malicious gossip or an accuser. That's what the Greek implies. And fourthly, it's called Satan, which is used 53 times in all of Scripture. And Satan means adversary of the brethren. Is it not true that Satan is a great adversary of anybody that aligns with the Lord? And even those that don't, right? How much hatred is there for those who are lost to still be persecuted by the great accuser? He will have his day before the Lord. But at this time, he's bound. I'm going to take a few minutes to read through 10 scripture verses. Because again, I started off with the idea that there are three main views of millennialism. And again, the amillennialists believe that we are now, that Satan is bound at this time. And I'm going to go through 10 scripture verses to show why that can't be in our time. And I'm just going to take a little bit of time to do that because I think it's important to set our context. Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5 and verse 3. 
But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? Satan could not be bound if he has filled the heart of Ananias to lie against the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. This is speaking, Paul speaking to the church. If we are not ignorant of his schemes, if he's scheming, he's obviously active. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Again, Paul is speaking in terms of the here and now. He's not speaking in past tense. He's speaking of now. James chapter 4. Oh, I'm sorry. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Even Paul acknowledged the fact that God uses Satan for his great glory and his purposes, to keep him humble and from exalting himself. James chapter 4. James chapter 4 and verse 7 says this, Submit therefore to God. Why? Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. If James is talking to the church, and he's saying resist the devil, that means he's there, he's active. He's seeking to bring down the church. 1 Thessalonians 2. 1 Thessalonians 2. Verse 18. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. This was later in Paul's ministry. 1 Timothy 5, verse 15. 1 Timothy 5 and verse 15. For some have already turned aside to follow after Satan. 2 Timothy 2.26 And may they come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Again, Satan is active in the early church times. Colossians 1 and verse 13. Colossians 1 and verse 13. For he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Therefore, there is an active moving of the people of God as you come to Christ out of the domain of darkness, out of the world and realm of Satan, and into the beloved kingdom of his Son. And then Ephesians 2 2. I'm going to end it right there for this. But Ephesians 2 2. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And there are many other scriptures. I could go on and on, but I'm not going to. Like I said, I chose 10 just to set that time. But we have a time of rest from the work of Satan in the millennial kingdom. Which leads us to our second point this morning, and it's a time of righteous rule. A time of righteous rule, verses 4 through 6. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. <coughs> Excuse me. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand, 
and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were completed, for this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So the first question that begs in verse 4 is who sat upon the thrones? Who was told in scripture that they would be ruling in the millennial kingdom? Does God give us an answer? Yes, he does. God is faithful. God does not keep it a secret. So the first group, there are four groups all together. And we're going to look at them individually this morning, just quickly. The first group is the Old Testament saints. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 tells us this. And this is one place. But Daniel 7 and verse 27 specifically. God promised to the Old Testament saints that they would rule and reign with Christ. Daniel 7 verse 27 Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. So we see here that it will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one, those who have put their faith in God and in Jesus Christ. Remember, Daniel's speaking to the Israelites. He is speaking of those who have come to the knowledge a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament days. So the Old Testament saints will be ruling and reigning. Christ also said the apostles will rule and reign with him. In Matthew chapter 19, Matthew 19 and verse 28, Jesus said this, And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you shall also sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That word regeneration is another word for the millennial kingdom. There are a lot of different words in scripture that are used of the millennial kingdom. So that we have the Old Testament saints and the apostles. Thirdly, we have the church or New Testament believers. And there's scriptures all over the place, right? And I'm just going to look at a couple really quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the apostle Paul admonishing the church in Corinth, and he admonished them often. But in verse 2, he says this, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? So how do you judge unless you rule, right? And then later on in the book of Second Timothy, Paul had this to say. In Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12, Paul said this, For if we have endured, we will also reign with him. But if we deny him, he also will deny us. Again, that idea of endurance and reigning with Christ. Revelation is full of that. In Revelation 2, 26 and 3, 21, it, Christ says in there, To him who endures will have the right to rule with me. Will have the right to sit upon my throne and rule if I have had to sit upon my father's throne and rule with him. Chapter 5 and verse 10 in Revelation. And I'll read that one for you because it establishes the fact that it is an earthly kingdom. Chapter 5, verse 10. And you who have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. He's very specific. It is an earthly ruling and reigning. There is an earthly kingdom that is yet to come. It's one we look forward to. But again, there's a fourth group. And that fourth group is set forth here in our passage this morning. 
And it's those who held to the testimony of Jesus Christ. In verse 4 it says, And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The word beheaded, it actually means to chop off with an axe. That's what the Greek means. It's just very vivid for execution. Those who oppose the beast and his image. Well, how do we know that's true? Well, as we've read already previously, that the beast and the false prophet will post to death those who refuse to worship his image. Those who refuse to bow the knee to Satan and to worship Satan and Antichrist will be killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. Those who do not receive the mark of the beast on their forehead or on their hand, some of them will starve without food because you cannot buy or sell without the mark. Some of those will be chased down and hunted. Why a mark on the forehead and the hand? It's very distinguishing. It's very easy to see. It's right there. It's hard to, it's hard to conceal the fact that you don't have the mark. It makes it easy for them to persecute the people of God. But here we also see another thing. And again, I'm going to go back to those two words I use. Imputation and intrinsic. And they mean two totally different things. Right now we have the imputed righteousness of Christ. We are not perfect. We are not holy. Except for with the blood of Christ we are covered. We are imputed with the righteousness of Christ. He has given it to us as a covering. And yet we still what? We still live in the flesh and we are still sinners. If you don't believe me, hang around me for a while. And I don't mean that as a boast, I mean that as a failure. I still live in the flesh, I still fail. I'm not perfect. None of us are perfect. If you don't believe me, watch little ones for a while, right? You don't have to teach them how to sin. They've all learned it. How? Because they have the imputed nature, the intrinsic nature of Adam. That gets us to our second word, intrinsic righteousness. When we come back with Christ to reign on the earth, we will have intrinsic righteousness. Who knows what that word means? Intrinsic. Anybody? Built in. Built in, yeah. We will be perfect. Not because we have now the imputed righteousness of Christ, but we will be like the angels and have intrinsic holiness. We will have a holiness of our own. Why? Because God designed us that way. God designed us, when we go to be with him, that we will put off the flesh and we will put on the immortal. And putting on immortality, we will be made perfect. We will have intrinsic holiness. Therefore, when it says that we will come and we will judge the earth, we will judge in perfect righteousness. We will live in perfect righteousness. We had this discussion this morning in my house. Most of us aren't going to be able to wrap our heads around the fact that we'll be perfect. Living among those who are not. It's difficult, but it's true. The scripture tells us that. Those who have faith in Jesus Christ will come back and rule and reign in righteousness along with Christ. So we will continue to do what we've been admonished to do in scripture. Worship God and give him glory. And make known his name in all the earth. We will continue to do that. It will not be a less of a job of doing that. We will still be a kingdom of priests and ministers to God. How? By making his glory known in all the earth. We will have that opportunity to do that without the hindrance of our sin. Without the hindrance of our flesh. And people who are here still are still sinners. Because again, like we talked about earlier, 
You still have people that have been ushered in out of the tribulation into the millennial kingdom. They will still bear the image of the flesh and the image of Adam. They will still be fallen. And their children, as our children, are not intrinsically righteous because they're born into a, Christ, a Christian family. They have to choose and whom they will follow this day. They will have to choose Christ. They will have to submit to the blessed blood of Christ. That His blood is what saves. His blood is what washes us anew. His blood is what makes us righteous before a holy God. His blood is what saves us from the eternal wrath of God. They still have to make that choice. And here, in a time of righteous rule, you still have those who choose not to follow Christ. Why? Because people love their sin. It's no different then than it is today. People love their sin. People hunger for it. What did God tell Cain? Sin is crouching at your door, but you must learn to master it. Mastering something takes time. It takes effort. It takes intentionality. And if we're not willing to do that, we will fall. And we will be bound under that mastery. It's no different in the millennial kingdom. People will still have to choose whether they follow Christ or whether they won't. You know what's awesome? Because the Bible says that there will be a full knowledge of God on the earth, which is why the animals act the way they do in the millennial kingdom. Where a kid can play in a viper's hole or with a cobra, and it's not a problem. Where the lion and the lamb can lie down together. Where the lion will eat straw like an ox. Ain't seen that yet either. But yeah, during this time, God will remove the tempter. God will remove Satan. Why? Because God still shows his glory and his justice. And still shows the fact that man still will choose his sin, even left to himself. Live in a perfect world, and everybody's like, oh, if we live in a perfect world, we'll be right, we'll be good. No, we won't. It's the whole point of the millennial kingdom, that man is still a sinner. Why? Because he still goes back to the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned, that is still the heart of man. How can we say that? Well, Adam and Eve were made perfect. They were made in the image of God without sin and without a knowledge of sin. And they still chose to sin. Man will still choose to sin in the millennium. But there's a differentiation of believers and unbelievers here. And we get to, again, another of our Beatitudes. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. For those of us, sometimes this passage can get a little tricky to interpret or to understand. Because it says the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. For this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Why does it say the first resurrection? Yep. Very good. Well, because you have the Old Testament saints. You have the apostles. You have the church age. And then you also have the tribulation saints, right? And those four groups are resurrected to come back to rule and reign with Christ. The unbelievers are not. They're still waiting their day in God's court, which we're going to get to, Lord willing, next week. The unbelievers are still not resurrected. Why? Because God has done away with that on the earth, right? Mostly. He's done away with the 
influences of sin, and yet man's heart is still sinful. Man still needs to bow to knee to Christ. He cannot live in his own. But it says here, blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Again, it's pointing out the fact that there is blessing in that. And what is that blessing? Over these, the second death has no power. Amen? Amen. That's a great, great blessing. Nothing better. But the first resurrection is talked about often in Scripture. Luke 14, 14. I'm going to read some Scripture verses about it this morning. Just because I like to be full and broad and the understanding of Scripture and the fluidity of it. But Luke 14, 14. Excuse me. And you will be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. It's the first resurrection. John 5, 29. John 5, 29. And will come forth those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, and those who did evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. We don't see any judgment here in the millennium outside of those who are ruling and reigning on the earth. There's not a resurrection of judgment happening. That comes later. And we'll see that in our text. Lord willing, again next week. But Acts 24, 1 Corinthians 15, Hebrews 11, they all talk about the resurrection of the righteous. They all talk about that first resurrection. That word resurrection in the Greek is anastasis. It's used 42 times in the New Testament. And it always implies a physical resurrection. This is not a spiritual resurrection. This is a physical resurrection. Which again goes back to the fact that Christ promised a bodily resurrection. Why? Because he was bodily raised from the dead. And we shall be like him when he appears. That's what the scriptures tell us. Follow the scripture. Follow the truth that is revealed in scripture. And then what other blessing do we have? And it says here, the, over these, the second death has no power. What is the second death? I know you guys know this. The lake of fire, right? Hell is the second death. And praise God that it says in his word, those who are blessed in the first resurrection, the second death has no power. Why? Because we are righteous in Christ. Because we are covered by the blood of Christ. Because we have been saved from the eternal wrath of God through the blood and propitiation of Jesus Christ. It's the glory of the gospel. Unbelievers will have to endure the eternal wrath of God. That is scary and terrifying. It's talked about often in Scripture. I'm going to read a couple verses for you. Romans 5, 9. Romans 5, 9 says this. Much more than having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. 1 Thessalonians 1. First Thessalonians 1 and verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. And then First Thessalonians 5, 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for the obtaining of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the beauty of the blessing of those who partake of the first resurrection. They have been saved from the wrath of God. So what will our role be in the millennial kingdom? I'm going to read a verse from 1 Peter. Peter gets down to it. 
1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. He says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That is not just for here and now. That will also be part of the millennial kingdom. Because there will still be people that are unsaved. Again, we go back to the idea of the understanding of the millennium. It's occupied not just by the righteous that comes back with Christ, but those who made it through the tribulation. Those who made it through the devastating judgments of God. Who have, through faith in Christ, were ushered into the millennial kingdom. But they will propagate and proliferate throughout the earth. For a millennial kingdom, a thousand years you have people marrying and having children and bearing fruit and being healthy and living healthy. Think about it. Think about from the time of Adam to the time of Noah. How many people filled the earth in that short period of time? A lot of people, right? Think about Methuselah, man that lived the longest, right? 969 years. Didn't quite hit 1,000, but he was really close. Think about how many generations he saw. How many generations of his offspring he saw. Now take an entire world and propagate that out. It's huge. The earth is going to be filled with people. You're not going to have natural disaster. You're not going to have animal attacks and death. You're not going to have disease. You're not going to have starvation. Unless you have rebellion. Because the scripture also talks about in the millennial kingdom that Christ will not send rain on the unrighteous. Those who rebel. Christ will put down rebellion. How do we know that? Because it says if they do not live until 100 years old, they will be considered accursed and a child. Christ will rule with a rod of iron. That is not metaphorical. It is not like he's not going to go around and beat people over the head with a rod of iron. But he's going to rule with absolute authority and deal with sin immediately. It's going to be dealt with. And again, why do we need to judge? Unless there's nothing to judge, right? God says that we will judge and rule in the earth. Because there will be sin to judge over. There will be disputes. Maybe not often, but they will be there. And maybe all of us will get to be like mayors of Shelby or little towns, right? That'd be great. I had a pastor one time that said I would be the mayor of Wooster. Now, if you guys don't know, Wooster is like a little speck of a dot that almost you wouldn't even know it's there. And if you drove through it, you probably don't know you drove through it. It's that small. But he made that statement in the fact of the glorious blessing of even being the mayor of Wooster. Or maybe there's like five people it would still be a great blessing because you're still part of the kingdom of God. Let's look at our last point this morning, and it's a time of revelation. And this is where the heart starts to break for me. Verses 7 through 10. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war, And the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came upon the broad plain of the earth, and they surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Again, I'm going to emphasize this. No unsaved people enter the millennial kingdom. But yet we see 
that when God and his great purpose releases Satan, what happens? And for those that have propagated this lie, the earth is not flat. Going to the four corners of the earth does not mean a flat earth. It's just saying the four cardinal points, north, south, east, and west, encompassing the whole earth. There are people that still today believe in a flat earth. Don't know why, but they do. But it's talking about the fact that in all the main points, there will be people that Satan gathers for the great war. Which, I find it funny. You have the battle of Armageddon and the great war at the end of the age. They're really not battles or wars. They're ended instantly. There's no fight. But again, we see a time of revelation. And I say that because when Satan is released, he's released for the purpose of what? Revealing the heart of man that has already decided to rebel against the holy God. Man has made his choice. At this point, at the end of the millennial kingdom, after a thousand years of the perfect righteous rule and physical rule of Christ on earth, man has made his choice to rebel against the holy God. We come to the end of the millennium, and we don't see that because we have a time of peace and prosperity and fruitfulness, a time of Eden, and a time of being able to see the risen Christ ruling and reigning physically on the earth, being able to go and to worship on the holy hill of God. We don't see a people that are great and mighty. We see a people that are despicable, despised. We see a people that are depraved in the heart. When Satan is released, it's only to show that God's judgment is just in their destruction. And when Satan gathers from the four corners of the globe a people that are too numerous to count, right? We've heard that before. The number of them will be like the sand of the seashore. Where did we hear that from before? Promised Abraham, right? Your descendants shall be as numerous as the stars of heaven or as numerous as the sand of the seashore. And, he, and God said what? If you can count the sand on the seashore, that's how many there will be. But it's a number that's vast. If you don't believe me, go to Lake Michigan just a mile away and try to count how many granules of sand there are in just a small little one foot by one foot patch. But if you take the seashore in its entirety, that's the vastness of the rebellion. That's the depravity of the heart of man. Take Satan out of the equation. Take the effects of sin mostly out of the equation. And you still have a people who love their sin. It's, it's heartbreaking to read that. Because in the end of the day, describes each and every one of us without Christ. Without Christ, just like them, we would go astray and rebel. Again, it goes back to when the Pharisees mocked Christ on the cross, come down from there and we'll believe in you. No, you won't. Because we have a thousand years of Christ reigning and ruling perfectly and people still choose their sin. People still choose, nah, ain't for me. I want to be the king of my own heart. I want to set my own destiny. The nature of Adam has continued to be passed on to his offspring. The idea of Gog and Magog, guys, I'm going to be honest with you, it's spoken of in Scripture. And it's always represented the people that are opposed to God. Could be the name of a leader. I don't know. I'm not going to try to put anything to it. Outside of the fact if it's just representative of those who are against Christ. It is representative of those who hate God. 
who join with Satan in this final rebellion. But it's interesting here, and it says in in verse 9, and they came upon the broad plain of the earth. And that that understanding is important, right? Because we know that in the tribulation, God's going to reorganize the earth, right? He's going to bring low the plains of the earth and raise up Jerusalem. It's scriptural. Read it. We've read it in Revelation. You see it in other places. But on that broad plain, it says that they come up. And it says this, and they surround the camp of the saints. That word camp is important. I'm not going to try to pronounce it in the Greek because my Greek isn't very good. But that word means a military barrack. So it's used often in the New Testament. It's used mostly in the book of Acts. It's actually used six times in the book of Acts. And it's always referring to a Roman barrack, military barrack. So the camp of the saints have come and surrounded Jerusalem. The saints are around who? Christ, their king, the glory of the nations, right? It says during the millennial kingdom, all the kings of the earth will bring the glory of the nations to Christ. Will bring the glory of the nations into Jerusalem. And it's the saints that surround the capital city. It's the saints that surround their Savior. And you know what happens? We all go out to war, right? No. Again, it is over before it even begins. Why? Because as they come and they surround the camp of the saints in the beloved city, fire came down from heaven and devoured them. It's over in a flash. And I don't mean that just as in a funny joke, but it's over in a flash. Before anybody can think about it. Before they can even mobilize and go to war. It's done and it's over with. Fire from heaven for judgment has been riddled throughout all the scriptures. Genesis 19.24, Leviticus 10.2. 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 10 and 12, and in Luke chapter 9, verse 54. Those are places where God has sent fire for judgment from heaven. That phrase, forever and ever, is important as we get down into verse 10, because it sets the precedent of what eternal punishment is. In verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. Again, that proves the fact that annihilationism is an anti-theatical statement. People, when they die, aren't just, you exist no more. It's not biblical. Okay? Because the beast and the false prophet are there a thousand years later. Still. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That Greek phrase, forever and ever, dictates the eternality of God, right? I'm going to show some examples that are used specifically in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18, it's used this way. And the living one, speaking of Christ, and I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. That word forevermore is the same Greek word that is translated forever and ever. Speaking of the eternality of Christ, chapter 4, verse 9 and 10 Chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, and the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever. Again, talking about the eternality of God. In chapter 10, and verse 6. And they swore by him who lives forever and ever. Again, the eternality of God and his power. And his rule, chapter 15 and verse 7. And then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. 
And then in chapter 11 and verse 15, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. You guys get the picture? doesn't end. The eternality of God and of Christ. There's other places in Revelation that speak of that, but I want to end with a couple of the passages from the New Testament, from the Gospels, speaking about the eternality of Christ and His people. In Matthew chapter 25, Matthew 25 and verse 46 says this, These will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Again, the separating of the sheep and the goats, separating of the righteous and the unrighteous, both of them to eternal Both of them have an eternal destiny. One to blessing and honor in life and one to suffering and torment and death. Mark chapter 9 and verse 43. Mark 9 and verse 43. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. For it is better for you to enter life crippled than having both your hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire. That word unquenchable is equated with eternity. Doesn't you can't put it out? It's not going to stop. It's a place of torment and agony, and I could go on with a lot of different verses, but I'm not going to. But I want to end with a thought that Peter had that continues to help us to see what we're moving towards. In First Peter chapter one and verse four. Actually, I'm going to back up to verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. That is where we stand. We have the blessing of an eternal blessing that will not fade away, that will not be corrupted, And that will stand for all ages throughout our eternity to the glory of God and to the glory of Christ. That's that's the message. Again, man is made in the image of God, therefore he is not just flesh, but he is spirit, and spirit is eternal. You have two destinies, both of them eternal, and both of them made by a choice. Choice of belief, and the righteousness of Christ and the sufficiency of the blood are a choice of eternal damnation and torment and agony knowing that you made the wrong choice, knowing that you followed after the sinfulness of your heart. Those are the choices that we have. And that's what this proves, is that man, even left to his own devices in a perfect setting, can still choose his sin because man still loves his sin. But we, who have been called and chosen of God, can love righteousness and peace and have joy in our hearts because of that. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day, the day in which we can celebrate the fact that we have moved out of the domain of darkness and been transferred into the kingdom of your beloved Son. That you have removed the blinders of our adversary, the devil. 
that we can see the truth of your word and we can worship you in spirit and in truth even now. Father, we thank you for the blood of Christ that was sufficient to cover my sin, that was sufficient to cover the sins of those who would believe for all ages. But Lord, in that sobering reality of our joy, Father, may we take heed to ourselves. May we continue to walk in faithfulness, but may we also continue to make sure of our calling, that we would continue to test ourselves, to see that we are in the faith. Father, in a time of great rejoicing and rest, where our adversary is taken away, where righteousness rules and reigns perfectly, Lord, even in that, man continues to show his utter depravity that he will continue to choose and love his sin, that he will continue to hide the joy in his heart and his pride and his rebellion against Christ. Father, we just thank you that you have brought us out of the domain of darkness. We thank you that you have given us the light of life, that you have given us of your Holy Spirit as a marked promise and seal, that we are children of of the God Most High of our King and our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we just ask that you would be glorified and honored through your word today and that you would continue to spur us on all the more to faith and godliness, to obedience to Christ, which shows and proves our love day in and day out. And we give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.